0: Hello everyone and welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 148 and we're reviewing Hell's Paradise. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode.
1: I prefer the Japanese name, Jigokuraku.
0: I know. I, I sometimes <laughs> even forget it's called Hell's Paradise because I saw all the announcements for the anime adaptation. Everyone kept calling it Jigokuraku in the beginning um, before they started adapting the localized English name. And then I was like, what's Hell's Paradise? And I realized it's the same thing. But, you know, Jigokuraku is already (laughs) ingrained Ingrained in my brain. So from here on out, I'm going to be calling it Jigokuraku. But obviously, we're talking about Hell's Paradise. But before we do any of that, I have something very important to say. Go ahead. Happy birthday.
1: Oh, (laughs) I was like, what is this announcement? You didn't even (laughs) tell me about this beforehand, but... Thank you. Yeah, my birthday will be this week.
0: Yeah, as of when this episode is going live. So yeah, happy birthday. Happy early birthday as of right now. Um, yeah, I'm excited. We're going to be celebrating this next next weekend. Yeah.
1: Or this, this week. The weekend
0: yeah. after your actual birthday. Yes. We're going to go um, to a sushi place. we're fucking weebs (laughs) yeah i wanted to take you out somewhere nice to eat just the two of us we'll have uh, a babysitter for our little baby um we'll get away for a little bit uh and yeah just enjoy hanging out eating sushi being in the city the downtown area of the city anyway um and it'll be a good time
1: yeah i feel like we haven't had a, a kind of date like that in a while obviously because we've been taking care of our baby uh but yeah it'll it'll be nice just the the two of us um yeah i decided this year to just have a, a sort of low-key birthday celebration with just you and me uh the past two or so years we've had friends over to to celebrate and it was fun and a lot of us like <laughs> got pretty litty on, on those occasions. But yeah. I think just settling down now with having a family, not that we can't do those things anymore, but sometimes I just like to take a break from like having these hectic things and just have a nice, quiet, relaxing evening.
0: I feel like you've wanted a quiet birthday for many years now because every year I ask you, what do you want to do for your birthday? Do you have any plans? Anything that you'd like to, to do or have me put together? And every time you're like, I want to do nothing. I want to have a weekend where I do nothing. <laughs> but then when it gets closer, you're like, oh, well, maybe I'll have a party. Maybe we'll hang out with everybody. Maybe we'll drink. And it's always a good, a great time. Uh, but maybe this is finally the weekend, the birthday weekend where you're just going to do nothing except have a lot of sushi.
1: Yeah, it's just tough because I know a lot of our friends, like they love celebrating things with us and and hanging out. Uh, So I always felt pressured uh, in in the previous years to put together a celebration. Uh, But I think for this month or this July, it's just been crazy for us. I think we have something going on every weekend. Uh, so to plan an additional thing just for my birthday would have just been too much to put on our plate, uh, but I think a, a simple dinner just suffices for this year. And of course, we can celebrate with our friends on other occasions down the road, or I don't know, maybe next year Well, I'll return to having a birthday celebration. Although I'd like to focus our energy more on our, our kid celebrating his birthday rather than rather than us putting together parties for ourselves.
0: I know it's weird. It's going to be that shift now where, I don't know, if somebody asked me, like, what do you want for your birthday or for Christmas? I feel like I'm just going to say, don't worry about me. Just go ahead and buy something for our baby instead. (laughs) Because for Mother's Day, I had a couple of people reach out saying, like, oh, is there anything in particular you want for Mother's Day? And I'm like, well, you don't have to get me anything, first of all, but I appreciate it. Um, but if you do get me something, just get something for the baby. That'll make me plenty happy. Um, I already buy a lot of what I want anyway. <laughs> so it's just easier and I think um, better for our our little one to get spoiled with gifts, even when it's not a day that he's
1: celebrating. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about this the other day, how I think for holidays like Mother's or Father's Day, it kind of makes sense to to give a, a mother or father a gift that's helps them in taking care of their family. Whereas I think like for a birthday, like a personal, a personal holiday for an individual, I think like they, they they're in the right to suggest to people what they'd like for their birthday. I mean, it's the one day a year where you really get to celebrate yourself. So uh, I think that's sort of what my rationale would be in terms of like what to get for gifts on certain occasions
0: we'll just tell everyone to get gifts for rigby our corgi <laughs> well he has his own
1: birthday <laughs> yeah but
0: then he gets more gifts he gets more treats oh i'm looking at him see if he if he heard me he didn't he didn't react okay um see if he gets more uh yummy things and more toys to play with um But yeah i feel like i used to do that a lot too i would spoil rigby in place of me but now our baby will get spoiled plus rigby
1: but yeah, just going back to this being my birthday, it'll it'll be a nice weekend spent in a, a quiet paradise, which is a great transition into <laughs> the topic of this episode, which is hell's paradise. Hell's, like, Let's hope
0: your birthday's not a hell's paradise. But yes, happy early birthday. It'll be a heavenly paradise. Wow, okay, very nice. let's jump into it before we make more stupid jokes. So yeah, hell's paradise. Um, i I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know it existed until I saw the anime adaptation announcement. And I was interested right away when I saw that they were going to be making an anime about this particular story. And, uh, yeah, I would say it's pretty good, but it's also early days.
1: Yeah, I was kind of in a similar boat when we watched the first couple of episodes for Hell's Paradise. And I even think, or I think even in our uh, Spring Impressions episode, I asked myself, is this going to be MAPPA's first mid-anime in a while?
0: No, they've had other mid-anime, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: But this, like, watching it at first, I really couldn't get into this show much like Jujutsu Kaisen because I thought that a lot of it just seemed derivative of things that we've seen in other anime or shown in that I found more interesting uh granted though like there wasn't I would say not a lot of hype generated around the show in comparison to something like Chainsaw Man where we were just getting bombarded with like the manga readers and just marketing material pushing Chainsaw Man like straight in our face. Raku or Hell's Paradise was nowhere near that, so I really didn't have any expectations going into it, uh, but yeah, I really didn't know what to make of this show in the first half until I feel it started to really open up and get its footing by the second half of this uh, 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 second half of this core because it's thirteen episodes. Uh, it's just funny that I feel like everyone just dies in this show. I don't think I've seen like a this rapid of a major character kill count since The Walking Dead.
0: I have thoughts on that, but let me let me jump a little bit back to what you said about this concept, this story um, being done before. You're absolutely right. there There are other anime that have done this concept before of, um, especially in this this time period, the setting, um where you know you have this ragtag group of criminals. Being brought together, um, you know, forcibly brought together for the purposes of like some weird goal,
1: finding a, a MacGuffin.
0: Yeah, um, you know, to serve the government or whatever, to serve their their interests. Uh, but I would say of the shows that I've seen that have that similar premise, Jigokuraku does it the best because it goes from like zero to hundred pretty quickly. Where to your point, a bunch of people just fucking die right away. People that you think might be in it for the long haul. And that's not the case. So it is very much a show where like Game of Thrones or like Walking Dead, nobody is safe except for probably the main characters, um, Mm -hmm. Sagiri and Gabimaru. But no one else is safe. So you really don't know who's going to live and who's going to die and when they're going to die. So I do love that aspect of it. I also really, really love the environments on the island. I loved that transition in one of the earlier episodes where... We go from the uh, wherever the criminals are at, and they're all fighting to see who's actually going to go to the island. Basically, everything off the island, we transition to when they arrive to the island, and we see the color palettes, the environments with the flowers, and like just everything looking so mystical, and the different statues, and everything, and the weird creatures that are on this island. It is just. A feast for your eyes the way that these environments are not only drawn and created but also the way they're colorized it's just so nice to look at
1: I agree I think it's the this premise of a hellish island that makes Jugokuraku stand out from other shonen it didn't seem that remarkable to me until again the second half opens up with revealing these sort of layers of intrigue in this show's mysterious shinsenkyo setting and just its depiction of being this sort of vibrant and beautified version of a hellscape it's kind of it begs the question like why is hell so colorful in this show almost like a, a perverted garden of eden and just the way that the show builds up the mystery of the island i would say it's it's pretty fast paced it's not like the entire season was spent with the characters like trying to fight their way into the island like they go from the out outer circle into the inner circle which that's another thing like i noticed like that's a that's a trope that i know is featured a lot in anime but when they or who was it hoko the the tree guy Uh, was explaining the layout of the island, and I saw the three rings, I immediately thought Attack on Titan. And I was like, okay, uh, there's a cliche that, you know, I think Jigoku Rock is full of them, but I think uh, that was just more so funny to me rather than being like, oh, this is just like another derivative thing in this anime.
0: You didn't think it was like the circles of hell? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a a good point. Uh, I, I think in that vein this setting almost takes inspiration from like Dante's Inferno with there being nine circles of hell and it getting rougher and more dangerous the more you go into the depths Uh, but yeah I think it was more so just even though we all have this picture of what hell looks like for this show it kind of flips the script on that where it's pictured or depicted as more of a, a beautiful place but with a very dark origin and i think that kind of goes hand in hand with the messages and themes that this show is trying to evoke in sort of these parallels and paradoxes and kind of like this this theme of duality which is also pretty evident in the way that each episode title is structured There's always like a a give and go. Like there's prisoner and executioner, immortals and humans and and an us versus them. But at the same time, just like Shinsen Kill, I feel like not everything is as it seems on the surface. And that's also the case with characters like Gabimaru and Sakiri. They have like these cold-blooded killing capabilities, but the former kind of uses it as a means to get back home to the love of his life. And the latter kind of struggling with the burden of taking a life. So again, it's not like everything on the surface is black and white. There's a lot of grays in between with this sort of theme of duality.
0: It's kind of like lies are a theme as well. Because you said how this island looks beautiful, but it's basically hell. I mean, it's called Hell's Paradise, but it looks nothing like the reality of being on that island we learn as the mystery unfolds too that everything that they were told is basically a bunch of lies. Like it's, it's hard to tell what is actually the truth at this point, but the mystery of the island is really interesting. And I love the deceptions. I love the lies. I'm super intrigued by like who created the island, who's running the show, um, how are they creating these really crazy creatures and godlike beings and whatnot. However, I, I will say... Um, the mystery, the feel of the mystery anyway, is kind of short-lived at times because there's several info dumps that do become a bit overwhelming throughout the season, um, especially when it comes to like the power system. When I say overwhelming, I'm thinking <laughs> of like when they started to explain the power system. It kind of reminded me of how I felt overwhelmed when I was learning about Nen in Hunter okay, Hunter. I was about to say. I was like, holy shit, this is a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, w- that was another thing where I felt like this anime was going off of the cliche of of power systems and i know that's like in every shonen but hearing it in this one it, it was it's, it just screamed nen uh, and it uses just like a i don't know if like nen was like a, a real term for like aura or any of that sort of uh spiritual stuff but like we've heard of Tao, like taoism so i was kind of surprised that they just used a a a, a real, a real, real life word, um, to describe their power system. But, um, yeah, I I guess the way I understood it, it was kind of like Bruce Lee's mantra of being like water. So in that sense, I just like the, the simplicity of it. Like, it, I know there were like stages of Tao that they had explained, but I guess for purposes of this show, like, I'm glad that there wasn't a whole like arc dedicated to these characters learning Tao. Like they just presented it in a couple episodes and that's all you needed to know. I feel
0: like we're going to get more info though because they said like Tao is broken down into like all of these different things, but they only touched on like basically like the intercourse part of it. Um, So there's probably going to be more that we learn about down the road. But yeah, I was like, oh God, here we go. Like brace yourselves, <laughs> power system incoming. The other thing that made me feel like the mystery was short-lived was... Again, the, the info dumps, it was particularly the part where Gabi is fighting the two insect dudes. And they basically straight up just tell him everything. They're like, well, we're going to die anyway. Or, well, blah, blah, blah. We'll, we'll just go ahead and tell you all the information you want to know. And then there's another thing, too, where like, Gabi Maru just like immediately understood how to use Tao. And mm-hmm. I'm like, where's the mystery behind like how to use this power? Uh, I get he was probably exposed to it in his like clan or whatever. I think that's what they hinted at. Like he unknowingly got exposed to it. So he kind of picks it up faster, but it was almost too quick. Like Jotaro in part three Stardust Crusaders when he was playing, oh, that's a baseball or no, whatever he was playing first, the racing game. F Mega? Yeah, Um, where he was like, I've never played a video game. And then he plays it for five seconds and he's like, oh, I I get it now. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, So these things happen where I'm like, ooh, this mystery is there. And I'm hoping we can get like this nice slow trickle of information so that I can start to theorize what's going on in this island while you know, still being strung along enough to keep my interest. But then they just say, here's all the information you could ever want at this point in the story. We're just going to answer all of your questions. And then I'm like, oh, well, now I know. So now I'm slightly less compelled to want to keep learning more. But there is a lot left that's holding my interest.
1: Yeah, I, I think that also caught me off guard because it's not just Gabi Maru. I feel like a lot of the other Yamada, Simon also just quickly adapted to Tao um, and some of the other prisoners too, like uh, Chobe, who was kind of, I called him like the discount Bakugo. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, have similar <laughs> hairstyles. The tsundere guy. Uh, the blind uh, Yamada Asaimon. Shion also caught on quickly, but I think that just comes from their own personal experience. Uh, kind of like in Hunter x Hunter, like Gon didn't know that he was actually using Nen prior to his finding out what Nen is. Uh, So it's kind of like they had the experience there, it was just that they needed to capitalize upon it. Uh, So in that case, I'm not... Like, it didn't bother me too much, um, just knowing that they were able to just come up with ways to use Tao. And I think that just kind of helps the pacing of the story move quickly. Uh, But not to kind of spoil this series potential runtime, but I'm looking at the original run of the manga and it ran from 2018 to 2021. So I feel like they might, or like this story is purposely going to feel like a breeze to us just because it's establishing all of these things early on. Or it might be like an iceberg effect where we think we're getting everything right in the beginning, but under the surface, there's so much more complexity that we don't even know about.
0: I hope that's the case, the the latter, because I, I want more mystery i love a good mystery and i feel like Jigo kuraku has that with this island because again nothing is as what it seems throw throw away what is the line like forget everything you know about blah 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 forget everything yeah. you know about this island um that's kind of the the situation that we're in but while we're talking about power really quick i feel like the power scaling is kind of weird because you have gabimaru who is clearly op as fuck like he's Clearly insanely powerful and really skilled. But then he gets to the island and he's struggle-busting real hard, especially against that one criminal, the like giant dude.
1: The one with the cloth on his face? Yeah, that or, guy. Uh, Rokurota, I think, was yes.
0: his name. Like, Gabimaru is like, again, he's struggling real bad against that guy um, and, and needs Sagiri there to, to help even make a dent in this guy. Uh, but then a few episodes later, Gabimaru goes up against his first Tensen, his first one, the first one he's ever encountered, and almost completely destroys this Sen, like it was nothing. Not, not that it was nothing, but can clearly hold his own against what is supposed to be a godlike creature who is mm-hmm. supposedly immortal. So I'm like, wait, so which is it? <laughs> is he not the strongest being, or is he like I? Just, it's weird. Like he kind of bounces back and forth, where he seems like he's insanely powerful and then he'll go up against a, d- a different enemy that you think he can easily beat, and suddenly he can't. So power scaling is a bit strange. So I'm hoping that'll that'll kind of level out as the show goes on.
1: It's like an RPG. He, he gained XP while he was on the island, <laughs> first with Rokurota, <laughs> which elevated him a couple levels, and then that's how he was able to hold his own against that Tencent. Uh, but yeah, you make a really good point about like the sort of imbalance between these enemy types. But yeah, I think it was just clearly establishing that Gabimaru is is pretty OP. Uh and then you have that kind of bombshell ending where he kind of forgets everything. And so what that sort of dynamic is going to look like for him in the way that he uses his powers and his abilities I think that also sets up for a very interesting premise uh, after this season.
0: I do have one more gripe before we really dive into this discussion. Um, and I, I just want to get it out there because it's going to be something that will come up as we talk about these episodes. And it's the the deaths that happen. So it's realistic to have the death and it, deaths. And it is, as I said before, one of those shows where you're not sure who's going to live or who's going to die. But... Because we don't spend a lot of time with these various characters, at no point did I ever feel like, holy shit, I can't believe they killed off so and so. Or like, oh my god, like I'm I'm so sad that this character got killed off. I really liked them. Every time a character died, I was kinda like, Oh man, that sucks. Like I was just kinda like, oh that yeah, that sucks, but okay, whatever. Like I didn't know you very well. We didn't spend a lot of time with you so your death is less meaningful. Not to say that those deaths aren't important or that they didn't, you know, they weren't, like, <laughs> heart-wrenching, okay?
1: This like reminds I, me of the Demon Slayer movie. Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Guys, okay, it's fine. Like, you know, I I could say a death isn't impactful while also not saying that it's, like, not important or anything. So um, what I'm saying here is, as tra- I'm trying to tread carefully. It's not that these characters' deaths don't have any impact on me. It's just, like, I, I just i am not connected with them. So... I'm still sad that they died, but I'm not like heart wrenched that they died because to me they're expendable. They're expendable when we just don't know anything about them and they've been around for like a handful of episodes. Um, And yeah, I just that's all I can really say about that. So when we talk about some of these deaths, deaths as we go through the episodes, I may just have a lukewarm reaction to them because these characters came and went so quickly.
1: Yeah, I would say there was only one death towards the end that had some sort of impact on me, but again, it wasn't like anything heart wrenching. Uh, just because we've only we only have like thirteen episodes to work with, and again, the pacing of the show seems like it's going through the story pretty quickly. Uh, but I guess in in a way, the way that like it this show depicts all these characters and their demises it kind of frames it through the lens of how their goal is to find this elixir of immortality and with that they get the reward of being granted a pardon Or like the criminals get a reward for being granted a pardon from their offenses and so there's sort of this enticement of, of freedom for these characters but with them getting cut down it's like you see them all coming from different backgrounds and, and different reasons, but with them having a chance at like a second or like a new lease on life and, and really getting to capitalize on this newfound freedom, like shows how much it means for the characters that survive, like how much there is at stake with these other characters that came before them and didn't get to live to see that light of day. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Um, I have more to say on that, but I feel like I should wait <laughs> for the episodes because yeah. it's 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 like a lot of this stuff is ingrained throughout these episodes. Um, also really quick, flower language. I know nothing about flower language, and I know that the Ten Sen are based on different flowers and there's a lot of flowers on the island. So I'm sure there's a whole concept around flower language that plays into this show i just don't know anything about it so
1: we suck at like i can't even keep a plant alive (laughs) i
0: can keep a dog (laughs) alive like rigby's doing just fine but i Mm -hmm. cannot keep a plant alive i don't know what's wrong with me so flower language is beyond my my understanding i've never really dove into that but i'm sure there are probably articles out there that talk heavily about the flower language that's most likely present in this show
1: one language that I can talk about, and I'm sure you can talk about, is the language of music, eh. and so that brings us to a quick discussion about the OP and ED for Hell's Paradise, or Jikokuraku. and we start with the OP, which is titled Work by Ringo Sheena and Millennium Parade. I'm not familiar with Ringo Sheena, but Millennium Parade, I feel like I've seen their name before. With another anime, it might have been an anime that you watched, but maybe
0: you know I'm bad with names and titles, so and <laughs> I'm like maybe they sound familiar, but you'd have to like I have to like figure out which show it was.
1: Yeah. So in, in terms of visuals for this op, uh, a lot of blades of fire, which makes sense given Gabimaru's Ninpo. Um, you have the vibrantly colored natural landscapes of. Uh, of Shinsenkyo and as with any sort of shonen OP hints to later plot lines where it shows those flower monsters that the Tencent turn into like the Council of Tencent themselves and then with Mei and Hoko uh, those are all images that I had no clue what they were walking the first couple episodes but later on made sense um, but I would say like this is a, a sort of standard MAPPA opening just coated with flashy colors and trippy imagery
0: yeah 100 percent. this is classic recent years MAPA opening especially when you get this their favorite slow-mo shots they fucking love yes slow-mo shots in their OPs which is fine by me because they look really really good I love the song I love the the music um, I think it was a great song choice and that song has been stuck in my head all fucking week um i even told you before i was like the song has been stuck in my head all day i love it i think it's great the visuals are really good i would say though after after watching the whole season i almost feel like the op is too cool for this show Oof. like it's too cool <laughs> and too abstract for the show uh, i don't know if that's like a, a compliment to the op or a diss to the show i don't mean that the show's not cool but the OP is like on another level cool where it almost like doesn't match. Because I think about Jujutsu Kaisen's opening or Chainsaw Man's opening. Both of those are fucking cool. But they match the cool vibe that we got from those shows. I would say Jiko Kuraku doesn't have a cool vibe. It has a, like, an intensity to it um, and it has like an urgency to it. But it's not a cool show like it doesn't have, it doesn't evoke that feeling of coolness. So I'm like this OP is like on another level compared to what you're actually gonna get from the show.
1: Kind of like um, your boy Kong Ming, which was like my absolute yeah. favorite <laughs> OP of last year. Fantastic opening. The show was just good though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I yeah, I can kind of see the vibes uh, you get for this show's OP. Um, in terms of the music for me, uh, I think it's just that really grungy, in-your-face song that's very well punctuated by the the guitar riff in the beginning like with those three different uh, chords. Yeah, it's fucking and, good. I love it.
0: Yeah. I can hear it in my head right now.
1: And then I think the brass trumpets that sort of kick in. That's so in good. It's so good. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, you would never think that brass trumpets and like grungy rock would go so well together. And then in terms of lyrics... Uh, it was hard to kind of interpret these because this is a song that's filled with very vibrant but abstract lyrics. And from what I gather, from like just reading different interpretations, it sort of uses the metaphor of work or labor in facing the challenges of everyday life, hence the name work. I think the lyrics talk about being present in the moment as well as embracing the flow of life's ups and downs in order to shape one's own self, which I, go, I think goes hand in hand with the principles of Tao that are established in this series. And these are also themes and concepts that resonate with many characters in the series like Gabimaru and Sagiri who kind of question the roles that they've been placed in and if this truly represents their soulful essence. You have lyrics like, lay bare the phantasmagoria of life, or another translation is expose the ever-changing nature of life. Without its real presence, we remain undone. So again, that sort of ebb and flow of one's own life. And then with a brand new morality, the rights and wrongs admonish me. So again, taking the pieces of yourself, uh, seeing the rights and wrongs, and kind of judging that and seeing what sort of identity you can forge from that but then it has weird <laughs> english lyrics like the one i pulled out is wake up bankers pay back which <laughs> what <laughs> i think that's supposed to relate to the metaphor of work that's being established in this song so nothing that i think is related to Raku itself but yeah you know, this this song has those english metaphors and then we have the E.D., which is called Kami Hitoe" by Uru. Um, I believe Kami Hitoe" translates to a fine line. This artist I recognize because I think they did one of the E.D.'s for Yasha Hime, which you watched and you put on our Spotify playlist. Uh, Visuals-wise, just shots of Sagiri and Gabimaru using his Fire Knee. Fiery ninjutsu or ninpo, I think it's a very Gabimaru-focused ED, which kind of makes sense in terms of the song. Uh, It's like this gentle ballad that plays amidst the carnage of Shinzenkyo. I think the lyrics itself allude to Gabimaru's desire to be with his wife again, with excerpts like, Every day I wait for tomorrow to come, I long for the faint dream. You'll be thinking about someone again today and chase after the wish you are holding. Or no matter how many times you get hurt, I hope the love you kept protecting will envelop you someday. So maybe it's also like Sakiri expressing her hopes and desires for Gabimaru and getting out of this situation.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I feel like the two of them, while they're not on a level of like friendship yet, they care very much about each other. So it's probably at least one way, one of them speaking to the other, if not both ways.
1: Alright Strictly Fam, it's time to run like hell into our synopsis and discussion for Hell's Paradise or Jigokuraku, the 2023 anime adaptation of a Japanese manga series written and illustrated by Yuji Kaku. Produced by Mappa and directed by Kaori Makita, the series follows disgraced shinobi Gabimaru in a fictionalized version of the Edo period of Japan as he is escorted by female executioner Yamada Asaimon Sagiri to an exotic but treacherous island in search of an elixir of immortality. In episode 1, The Death Row Convict and the Executioner, it is the Edomame period in Japan, and a young shinobi named Gabs Maru is detained and doomed to die for dirty deeds, but destiny dares not decapitate him, for death dares not defy him. But when the authorities call in the big blades wielded by Yamada Faka clanswoman Sagi Ri to kappa his dictate, he suddenly feels death within arm's reach and realizes he must truly stay alive in order to make it home to dinner with his wife. But before he can do so, Sagi Ri forcibly volunteers him to join her on a mission from Kamisama to find an elixir that grants the user with immortality. Call it Forever Clear.
0: This could be a contender for one of the most wholesome anime of 2023 because this motherfucker has a wife. And he loves her, and he wants to get home to his wife. I'm like, this guy is wiped <laughs> up. What the fuck? I say that now, but when I get to the later parts of the series, where like basically sex is one of the important things for for Tower, for the power system, or whatever, it gets degenerate like pretty fast. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe it's not a contender, but at least when it comes to Gabi Madu, maybe one of the most wholesome characters because the man loves his wife. Also, his wife gives me Hina Tachibana vibes from Tokyo Revengers.
1: Oh yeah. Except Gabimaru does not give off Takemichi vibes, which is for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I didn't yeah, I didn't think about that like how unique Gabimaru is as a I guess a, a shonen protagonist. Because one, he he has a wife and, and, and two he loves
0: his wife. Yeah, what the who, fuck? He
1: he has that that kind of emotional goal where he's not just a a cold-blooded human i know they call him gabimata the hollow but this is sort of that duality that we talked about in the beginning where he he does sort of have a heart of gold that is uh, with him having this memory of his wife and wanting to be back home with her
0: and i think he's a character that innately has a heart of gold but it's his circumstances that prevent him from being able to just embrace that because he was he grew up a you know a killer a cold-blooded killer has been his whole life and needs to continue killing in order to maintain the life that he has with his wife up until he gets his ass arrested so I think that Gabi Madu is an interesting character because I don't think he enjoys killing I think he makes that very clear in the early episodes that he doesn't enjoy killing he doesn't want to kill but he'll do it because he has to.
1: Yeah, so it's it's kind of in the sense that his wife is his sort of saving grace in the way that she shows him kindness and kind of keeps him humble, which is gonna be interesting with how this first I'll just call it first season how it ends, where you're not sure if everything was just a lie or was being manipulated.
0: I think it is a season because Mal says season two for the next entry Hmm. for Jigokuraku so I don't know I'm gonna call it a season
1: okay another thing with this episode that I just kind of found funny is that there there's a narrator here I don't think we really hear him at any other point in the show yeah but they're going through like all the different ruthless forms of execution that they try out on Gabimaru but it's to no avail
0: See, that's okay. That's what confuses me, going back to the power scaling. I know he's not fighting in those moments, but he clearly has some level of immortality, and Mm. yet he's concerned about his well-being on the island. Yeah, that's true. I'm like, bro, they ripped you in half. They set you on fire. They they impaled you, and you were like, no problem. No no fucking problem. I could do this all day long. And then you get to the island, and suddenly he's concerned about his well-being. I know they say... In the first episode, or he says in the first episode, it's because he doesn't care if he dies. But I, I can't, I can't be convinced that that's the only thing that's fueling that behavior. I, I think he also doesn't think he'll die because he can't be killed. But then on the island, he's suddenly like, "I gotta, I gotta stay alive. I gotta get back to my wife. I, I don't want to die here." So I'm like, "So which is it? Are you immortal? Or are you not immortal? Like what the fuck's happening?"
1: Well, he still resisted dying during the executions like up until
0: yes but while also being in a situation where he physically should have died Mm -hmm. so he's getting pummeled on the island getting punched in the face and he should die from that but you would think it'd be similar where he's like i'm fine because i know i'm not going to die from this
1: yeah that's true unless he just thought oh shit these are real threats on the island (laughs) so i really i really can't die here In episode 2, Screening and Choosing, Sagiri takes Gab's Maru to a town hall meeting with other prisoners and their handlers to discuss Operation Hell's Paradise Lost, wherein the Shogunate will send a select number of pairings to locate the Forever Clear on a mystical but menacing island called Land, in exchange for the Wings of Freedom, meaning that the prisoners must Super Smash Brothers brawl each other for a coveted spot. Gabs Maru's invincibility cheat code allows him to emerge as one of the 10 selected contestants. Although Sagiri's struggle with kicking ass and taking names may prove to be a weak spot on their involuntary tag team.
0: I think this is where they start establishing the parallels between Sagiri and Gabi Maru because Sagiri in this episode is doubting herself and even her her clansmen doubt her that she's like suited for this expedition um, because... Killing is not something that she enjoys or, you know, wants to do. It's something that she fears. But then you have Gabi Madu on his side saying that he never prefers killing. He says something like he's only really killed because he had no other choice um, and that he'll only kill when he absolutely has to. But when he has to, he doesn't like it, but he won't fear it at the same time. So I think hearing this, Sagiri realizes that it's not the fear she has to overcome. It's accepting the burden of that fear and the, the responsibility of killing another person. So I think Gabi Madu is that parallel because he accepts those things, and that's why he doesn't like it. But she's kind of like one step behind him when it comes to that.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic for a character that in the first episode I thought was going to be this sort of level-headed of the pairing, like one that does things by the book, But it's clear here that she has conflicts herself. Um, So yeah, it presents, like you said, this parallel journey between the two of them that also just allows them to, even though they're on different sides of the coin, with him being a prisoner and her being an executioner, uh, they have that sort of shared bond.
0: We got one of, or maybe the best fight in episode two of like the whole season. That brawl between the criminals I thought was fucking brutal. They like dialed it up, dialed it up to a hundred for Gabi Madu's fight in particular, mm-hmm. and I love the way it was animated. It made him so like animalistic and wild, but also very calculated and skilled at the at the same time. The only downside is I feel like Mappa put all of their, their resources into that fight, and then we never got another fight for the rest of the season that looked as good as that one.
1: Well, I thought Mappa was pretty consistent with its action sequences, but I think this one is probably the highlight of the season. Again, in showing that Gabimaru is, like his name, as his namesake says, like hollow in the way that he just kills almost indiscriminately and without question. Uh, so I love that it, it establishes this, and it makes you eager to see what else Gabimaru has up his sleeve uh, when he actually gets to the island. So Mappa just, you know, flexing its action prowess as usual. In episode three, Weakness and Strength, as soon as Gabs Maru and Saggy Reese step foot on Shin's knee land to commence Operation Hell's Paradise Lost, All Paradise's hell breaks loose as another convict contestant tries to cut down the shaggy-haired shinobi at the cost of his own life. A fellow Yamada Faka warns the pair that if the prisoners do not succeed in their mission, Gabsmaru's awful Iwagakure in-laws will have to intervene, causing him to try and cut down Sagiri to find the forever clear unhindered, but realizing that he has a heart on that prohibits him from doing so. Elsewhere in Shinsniland, convict contestant Gigant Tetsusai confronts the island's creepy costumed creatures, and he's going to need another literal helping hand to take care of them.
0: I'm glad that they show the criminals actually being sneaky and sus. And even some of the Asaimon were like, who fucking cares we are already at the island? I like that shit, because that's realistic. They're criminals for a reason, and some of them just go rogue as soon as they have a lick of freedom being at- on the island. I-, I also really like this fight between Sagiri and Gabimaru, because they don't trust each other. They don't know each other. I like that it's going to take some time for the two of them to build that trust and to be convinced by one another versus, you know, what is the fucking thing? Like, the power of friendship or whatever solves all the fucking problems in anime sometimes where two characters who are supposed to be at odds with each other suddenly, very quickly and very easily become friends basically or allies here that's not the case and that's that carries through the whole season which I really appreciate so it's nice to see that they have these parallels but they haven't discovered them within one another yet and therefore they're going to be at each other's throats literally Um, because you have Gabimaru on one end thinking that he's become weak because even though he doesn't want to kill Sagiri he feels like he has to uh, because she'll he thinks that she'll hold him back from being able to reunite with his wife but then realizes that Sagiri kind of has a similar voice of reason to what his wife would normally say to him. Mm-hmm. It's almost like she's the voice of reason on behalf of his wife while he's away from her. So he sees the similarities between his wife and Sagiri, not from a romantic aspect, but from a personality aspect and a moral- morality aspect. Yeah. So it's that's something that, that resonates with him. And then Sagiri can't kill Madu on the other hand because she doesn't sense that there's anything inherently evil about him um, and thinks, well, maybe he's this way due to the circumstances of his upbringing. And she's more righteous. So if there's not a true criminal in front of her, can she kill him is is her question.
1: Although well, now that I think about it, like they sort of all like become friends in a way, allies, I guess, after this point. like This was the only real point of contention unless i'm not remembering a later episode that clearly uh, which i think just contributes to how this show is just pacing itself right
0: they have like they, they are growing closer after episode three but it's still they have hiccups throughout the season where they don't trust one another, they don't trust one another fully is really when it comes down to um, I think they're working together because they have a common goal, especially mm. towards the end where you know survival is that common goal. everyone's like, let's just let's just work together so we can all get the fuck off this island. Um, but I don't think we've gotten to a point yet where Gabi Madu and Sagiti are truly a hundred percent comfortable with each other.
1: I think this episode just also hints at the establishment of like Tao as the power system. Especially with its title, strength, or sorry, weakness and strength. Uh, so I think they even call back to this episode later on, or Gabimaru remembers what Sagiri says to him in this episode, and that starts to really open up his eyes and finding this balance between like, with between his strength and his heart. In episode four, Hell and Paradise. Gabs Maru faces some creepy costumed creatures of his own, but he and Sagiri find support from two other Yamada Fakas and the Kinky Kunoichi, Yuhu Yuzu. She offers to work with Gabs Maru in finding the Forever Clear after learning about the island's fucked up flora and fauna through the torment of another convict contestant, the details of which I am sure contributed to Sagiri's sudden fainting spell. Meanwhile, Yamada Faka Toma and his convicted brother Chobates. Face another set of creepy costume creatures, but are steadfast in escaping the island to earn their Jiyu no subasa.
0: The whole sequence with Gabimaru and Yuzuriha when they first run into each other was great. Because Gabimaru is familiar with her and her clan and their style of trickery, and he's not. Convinced at all by any of her seduction attempts. And I love the part where she tries to hug him and he said, I have a wife. Like, let's fucking go. <laughs> he knows what's up. Okay. This is great. I, Mado is a weird character, but I fucking love that he loves his wife.
1: Yeah. He sticks to his principles. <laughs> Good for you.
0: And then when we get introduced to the brothers, the Bakugo ass one, the Sundere, says what I was thinking the whole time. What's stopping the criminals from taking the elixir for themselves and becoming immortal? What's more enticing, a pardon from the government or immortality? <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I, I cannot be convinced that these criminals are going to willingly get the elixir, take it on a boat with them with like one, a Simon, you know, uh, chaperoning them, and then hand over to the government for a fucking pardon. I'd be like, mm-hmm. no, I'm taking the elixir for myself.
1: Yeah, I guess th- that's freedom in two different senses, right? Where you, you could be tempted by the lure of immortality by just taking the elixir yourself or like in Gabimaru's case, he wants to get this MacGuffin so he can just get back home to his wife. Like I said earlier, it's just all of these characters from different backgrounds and and different stories but all kind of pursuing a freedom in their own sense um, on this island, even though it, it's going to take a, quite an adventure to, to get that freedom, if they even can. In episode 5, The Samurai and the Woman, Sagiri comes to and learns from Gabsmaru that most of the island's fucked up flora are essentially samurai chia pets, and that their accompanying Yamada Faka Genji wants to relieve her of her swordsmithing duties. Gabsmaru tells Sagiri to fuck that shit, giving her the confidence to stand up to Genji's recommendation, and he is literally gutted. Meanwhile, Yamada Faka Tenza and his convicted charged Nuragai are trying to get the fuck out of this infernal dodge when the former discovers that the latter is actually a young woman, and he too is gutted, though not as bad as Genji.
0: This episode was okay. This is the point where I started noticing some really fast pacing in some of the episodes and dips in animation quality. To be fair, Mappa's got a lot on their plate, and I'm guessing around the same time as them animating Jigokuraku, there's probably resources being allocated to Vinland Saga Season 2 mm-hmm. and Jujutsu Kaisen Season 2. So I w- I'm not surprised that Chikokuraku isn't their bread and butter of this season or of this part of 2023. But there were some notable dips in the animation quality where I was kind of like, ooh, that, that sticks out a little bit. It sticks out like a sore thumb, kind of breaks my immersion a bit. It's not terrible. I know that it's, it's, a, it's a lot to animate stuff, but you can't help but notice when there is that that level of, of difference.
1: I didn't notice in this episode, but there was a subsequent episode that we'll discuss where I noticed that dip. Uh, this just reminds me that I they, they used the motorcycle opening from Vinland Saga for this series, which I was like, did, did they steal this? But I guess now it makes sense if they had the same team that was working on Vinland Saga, also kind of working in tandem on Jigoku Raku.
0: What we keep seeing throughout these episodes is Gabimaru and Sagiri learning from one another unexpectedly. And they're not intentionally trying to teach one another, but they are taking away from one another important lessons that they can use for themselves. And in this episode in particular, it's Sagiri being told repeatedly to go home because she's a woman and this is no place for a woman. But after talking to Gabimaru, who says that he won't or doesn't give into things that get in his way on his quest to be with his wife she then realizes I have to be the same way if I want to fulfill my goals and then ends up standing her ground um, when it comes to being on that island and finding the elixir so yeah she has moments of weakness it's very obvious to a lot of people that she has fear that she's trying to overcome but she doesn't let that stop her and but she's not in your face about it either like she just overcomes her shit and then like moves forward. That's what I like about her. It's not like this grand thing that she like you know has some like big ass speech for everybody, which she does. don't get me wrong. There are some monologues here and there, but I like that she just overcomes the problem and then moves forward and continues to
1: grow and what does uh, Dwight say? you need to vanquish fear <laughs> um, yeah, it's yeah, that's example of i guess it's almost like an example of duality where. Uh, Sagiri is expected to do one thing in her duty as a woman but she is there to, to break the mold and show what she's really capable of even if she has to acknowledge uh, her weaknesses In episode 6, Heart and Reason with Genji dying a hero's death with some parting trophy speech to Sagiri she and Gab's Maru team up to take down Genji's gut-wrencher Dwayne the Rokurota Johnson with the shaggy-haired shinobi resorting to sun-breathing to suffocate the big brawly boy and allow his Yamada Faka to get a nice clean cut off his neck. They regroup with Yamada Faka Senta and Yuhu Yuzu to continue their journey in finding the Forever Clear when they stumble upon a desolate village that is cloudy with a chance of Silent Hill. Meanwhile, Yamada Faka Toma and Chobates stumble across a porn chute in the middle of the island's jungle, and the two interrupted androgynous lovers are none too pleased, though they are one too pleasured.
0: This is the episode I talked about earlier where Gabi Maru is struggling to fight this motherfucker. And I'm like, why? Why is it so difficult for you? I get he's really tough, but have you not faced tougher? I mean, you will face tougher in a few episodes, and yet you're able to kind of hold your own. But when it comes to this brick house, <laughs> you're not able to do it. The point is, obviously, to show that Gabimaru and Sagiri need to team up and can team up and work very well together. But I just I wasn't convinced because he keeps, like, boomeranging around when it comes to his abilities and his level of power.
1: Yeah, I guess especially because he was able to dispatch of all of those prisoners in the original meeting with the shogunate. Um, unless, like like, these... 10 prisoners or himself included uh, are like the top tier. So in that sense, I can kind of understand that Rokurota is a force to be reckoned with. But yeah, I I think the other thing is that he and Sagiri both are saying their battle strategies out loud in front of Rokurota, (laughs) which anime tropes. Yeah. That's just a typical anime trope. Um, But yeah, I, I think the point with this episode is that they, Work well together when they can strategize together.
0: But then it was weird because the show is telling me that Gabi Maru is struggling, but then Sagiri finds a way to overcome this motherfucker. She's just a person with a sword. Gabi Madu has like special abilities. She's not just a person with well, a sword. No. <laughs> well, on, let me finish because it's. I realized after that. Yes, it's because of the Tao. Like she doesn't realize it yet, but it's because of her ability with Tao that she's mm-hmm. able to see the the right places to strike and in just the right ways. But at that point, we didn't know about that yet. So I was like, yeah. "What the fuck is happening here? Who's stronger, Gabi Madu or Sagiri?"
1: It's the the water, my friend. That's what's coming into play here. But yeah, eventually we learn that it's it's Tao, and then you have that scene, uh, where Sagiri is comforting Rokurōta in his last moments. And I was thinking, demon slayer. March? Yeah, this is some
0: Tanjiro <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> Again, this shows it's pulling things that we've seen in other shown in other anime, uh, but I guess it it is what it is. In episode seven, flowers and offerings, Gabsmaru's crew run into the village's only inhabitants, the pink-haired May and her woodland companion Bonsai Groot, who spills the tea on the Shinsneiland, the Foreverclear, and the Tensen who attack any intruders that disturb their paradoxical peace. Turns out the androgynous folks from earlier are part of this group and thus they chuck Toma and Cho Bates into the flowery pit of Hell's Paradise to become one with the Forever Clear, while Gab's Maru has a wet dream about his wife in order to prepare for some tension with the Sen. I think this, yeah, this is the episode where I thought things just felt animated differently from the others. I don't know if it's just because this was a sort of reprieve episode from any real action, I guess besides the Sen and uh, Toma and Chobe.
0: This is also the episode where the info dump started because we got a lot of info about the island and the elixir and like where it's located. And then we also learn about the immortal beings and that they won't let humans leave the island and they use them for their own immortality. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Um, but we get another moment where Sagiri continues to be the voice of reason on behalf of Gabimaru's wife when she tells him you're wearing yourself too thin and then Gabimaru recalls his wife saying the same thing to him and I think that reminder helps him to then I guess repair his new relationship with May because he shows that he has this soft side when he recalls his wife or him telling his wife not to hide her scar and then tells May the same thing that there's no reason to hide your scar there's nothing wrong with it.
1: Mm-hmm. With this info dump, I realize, again, there's a theme of paradox here because I think Hoko, again, Banzai Groot as I refer to him as, uh, explains that I think there are Soshin, which are the creatures that they've been encountering that have like these sort of half-human, half-animal features. Although a lot of the creatures, they... Look like deities, but it's odd because you would think of deities as being immortal. But the real "quote unquote" immortal beings on this island are the tensen. Uh, so there's this like kind we of look f- like humans. You're right. So That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a flip here in what we perceive as to be like strong beings, uh, when it's really like sochin are nothing compared to the tensen, basically. Also funny that the village is called Kotaku. Oh my god, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was
0: like, ooh, okay.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of the the gaming website, the gaming news website. Uh, This episode also, just besides being an info dump, had this really lighthearted vibe to it. And maybe it's, again, to anticipate the preparation of looming battle sequences, especially with Yuzu, who who just wants to go to the village because she... Can take a bath basically. Uh, uses an interesting character. Uh, she's kind of one that just she doesn't want to get involved unless she needs to. And I know, like, she, it's almost like she like the like the Joker from the Dark Knight. She's just there to watch the world burn. But in this episode, it, she just wants some R and R. In episode eight, Student and Master, we get a glimpse of Yamada Faka Tenza's former life as a street rat before coming under the tutelage of his blind mentor Shion, whom in the present rescues his ward and his convicted contestant Nuragai from a carrot-top Tenzin, though he is pretty sus that Nuragai might have their way with them as did his own convicted contestant. Before they can hold an emergency meeting, though, the carrot-top Tenzin strikes again, forcing Tenza to make a sacrifice play in order to save his mentor and prisoner-turned-lover because this is how anime is supposed to hit you in the feels, even though this is some background character who had like 10 seconds total of screen time before this episode.
0: Exactly. Okay, so I wasn't emotionally invested in Tenza. Cool character, though. I, I like him a lot. And it's still a sad story. Yeah, and I, I would have loved to continue seeing more of him. I, I Like, I'm bummed that he died, but like, I also am like, oh, okay, well, that sucks. Um, but it's because we we just got introduced to him like, what, an episode or two ago, and he's already dead. So I feel like to spend all of this time um, on his backstory and to dedicate an entire episode to him felt kind of pointless, unless he's going to come back somehow. And that goes—that's the same for any of these characters that have died. Like, unless they're going to come come back somehow, I don't know how, but you know, anime finds a way. <laughs> then mm. I don't. I sometimes it kind of feels a little bit pointless in this show.
1: Yeah, that's true. Like it's established that, I mean, we haven't gotten to this point yet but Chobe is able to come back even though his body was supposed to be used for tan like when it turns into the like flowery corpses um but yeah it's like I thought the redemption story for Tenza was pretty beautiful and it culminates in him sacrificing his life for his mentor and for his charge uh it's Just weird, like you said, that Nuragai is shedding tears for someone that she bonded with for only a couple hours.
0: Yeah, although I could see that one being convincing because she basically had her entire village wiped out and she didn't do anything wrong. And yet, is mm-hmm. being summoned, or sentenced to death, basically. And here comes Tenza saying, "Like, no, you didn't do anything wrong." And it's probably the first bit of kindness that she's experienced since then. So, I could, I that one, I, I can see. But you're right; it's like, it takes very little and a short amount of time for the two of them to become so attached at the hip.
1: But I guess his death is just meant to be a driving force for both and and Nurugai to continue on their journey to escape this island Um, with them I guess with Nurugai kind of having her own redemption story and with Shion just wanting to avenge his fallen mentee or his fallen student in episode 9 gods and people not wanting to wank around and wait out Gabsmaru decides to fuck around and find out by finding the gate to Horai himself. But who else does he come across but Carrot Top Tensen, resulting in the two of them really fucking around and finding out. Gab's Maru uses the last of his Hamon to try and fight off Carrot Top's PD piranha form until May swoops in to save him from saying sayonara. Apparently there are seven of these motherfuckers roaming around the island, but Gabs got a gigantetsu sized one to tackle first.
0: So, I've already talked about how suddenly Gabimaru Madu is able to hold his own against this you know crazy, powerful being. It is what it is. I did enjoy the fight, though. I thought it was really cool. I yeah. love that he went head to head with this particular Tencent. and the the Tencent, I I don't remember the name. What's the name of this Tencent? I, I actually don't know. Oh, okay, either. whatever. The orange haired one. <laughs> I
1: just called him Carrot Top. Okay,
0: Carrot Top. Uh, Carrot Top drops some interesting hints about Gabimaru. The first that we're getting about who he could really be. I think I think Carrot Top says something like, you might be one of whatever, or you might have you know something special about you, which we can all assume is the case because in episode one, he basically didn't die at all from any of um, the the attempts to take his life. I mean, I'm so sure there's something going on with him.
1: Yeah, I think it's connected to the Iwaga clan, the clan that took him in, which I, is I, then
0: connected to the supposed elixir, although yeah. we find out later that it might not even be a thing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the part of the mystery that's still really intriguing to me. Like, what's going on with Gabi Madu and what's going on with his clan and what's the connection to the island?
1: Yeah, I really love the fight sequence here, especially with, I think, Maru. Not just using his flaming ninpo ascetic blaze, but he also does like this spinning kick move that's just so satisfying to watch.
0: Yeah, that and like the sound design that went with every hit, you know, foot to face was really nice.
1: In episode 10, Yin and Yang, Gigantetsu Sai tries to pick a dick-slinging fight with Gab's Maru, but Yamada Fakafuchi calls it off in order for the trio to come to a truce. Perfect timing, because some creepy costumed creatures have come knocking on Hellish Heaven's door. We also learn about the island's mystical power system of ne- excuse me, Tau, and how it allows its users to go beyond plus ultra. We'll see how this fares for Chobates, who has climbed out of the flowery pit with his brother Toma, though an encounter with the enigmatic Doshi Shaman may cause him to throw in the Tau l.
0: So yeah, another info dump about the elixir, about the Tencent being seven beings who came from one, about who may have created the island, about Tau, and I'm like, oh my god, it's a lot to take in.
1: Yeah, they mentioned a name machia in this one, and I think that was the allusion to like someone who may have created the island, but that was all we got.
0: And I wonder if, if that's the master that the next Tencent we encounter, like, like drops hints about. So I like that they, in this show, they drop these tiny little hints, and then that's it. That's all you get, for the most part. But then they go and do, like, info dumps. So, like, they dropped a tiny little hint about Gabi Madu maybe having a connection to the Tencent or to the island. And then I think in the next episode, the Tencent will drop a hint, like, oh, our master did all these things or whatever for the island and they kind of really don't visit it again it's still leaving enough among the breadcrumbs that it's it's dropping um for me to stay interested on in what's going on with this mystery despite all the info that we get in episode 10.
1: and then we get the, the doshi who are just another class of i guess beings on this island there's the soshin the doshi who i guess serve the ten sen uh, I guess, like, they felt more like a plot device, especially for this upcoming episode to explain, like, like why my Mei is so important. And speaking of the next episode, episode 11, Weak and Strong, turns out Cho Bates is one with the Tao and makes a Doshi Donut out of his adversary, though Toma grows concerned about his brother's physical and mental state. Gant and Gabs, too, try to come to terms with the teachings of Tao, but learn that the doshi following them is just a sex freak who wants to get it on with Mei in the name of spiritual science. This sets Gabs Maru off as he learns that his Tao must possess both the properties of rubber and excuse me, strength and weakness in order to dole out some doshi donuts for himself. Elsewhere, Sagiri and company make it to the gates of Horai though they are greeted by a pink-haired peony pissant who chops off Bonsai Groot's head. Who barked up your tree, man?
0: May's I guess, attempt at trying to explain Tao um, is interesting because no one knows what the fuck she's talking about. But then she goes and just touches Gabimaru's hand and kind of, like, shows it to him. And suddenly he's like, yeah, okay, I get it. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> And we talked about earlier about how he's probably already been exposed to it, you know, without him realizing it when he was training as a shinobi. But damn, he learns fast. It took like no effort. She's like, "Let me touch your hand, and you'll you'll know everything that you need to know about Tao."
1: I mean, it makes sense. I like how it's him sensing his own weakness, which allows him to sense a weakness in others. Which it just makes sense uh, with the way that Tao works in this series. Um, again, I think it it does move a little bit too quickly for our tastes, but, I, I mean, I think that's just the nature of this show.
0: It does help him, though, with realizing why Sagiri is so strong because she recognizes her, her own weaknesses. So if Tao is fueled by strength and weakness... Sagiri's already kind of doing that without realizing it because she knows that fear is her weakness.
1: What about that, like, the, the Doshi sex thing? Yeah. What did you think about that? <laughs> I
0: was like, okay. So I get where they're going with it because, um, you know, they're like sex kind of fuels this power and the Tencent bang all the time apparently – but May is only one gender, so she was thrown out and she's being used to help the Doshi master their powers. And I'm like, that's gross. But what was really nice about it, not not nice, but like I guess a silver lining is that everyone on Gabi side is on board with protecting May like mm-hmm. everyone including the 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 dude with Gun, one arm
1: Tetsuya. <laughs>
0: yes, that guy. Even he was like, yo, that's gross. What the fuck? What's wrong with you all? <laughs> so that that was interesting cuz I I pitted him to be the one character who would maybe be the devil's advocate saying like, "Oh, well, what's so bad about that?" But no, he he was equally as disgusted as everybody else and I was like, "Okay, cool." So there's potential here for a an actual ally to to be or for this character to be an actual ally for Gabi Mato and for me,
1: I mean, I know he has his own motives, his own goal, where I think he wants to be immortal in the sense of him becoming a legend during this historical, I guess, invasion of Shinsenkyo. But yeah, I'm glad that he has that sort of ethical understanding that you you can't just do this to someone who's a, who's a child and and treat them as an object.
0: I wonder if he's as misunderstood as Gabi Madu is cuz it seems like he has a heart of gold as well. He's like taken to May and like helps her out and even, you know, scolds Gabi Madu for making her cry. So maybe there's more to him than we realize. I am very interested by this character.
1: In episode 12, Umbrella and Ink it's a biennial bloodbath as Saggy Ri, Yuhuyuzu, and Senta triple tag team against the pink-haired peony pissant known as Jujun, who reveals that Shinsney Land is not a place where dreams come true, but rather a whole-ass horticultural lab where dreams come to die. Eventually, the trio takes down their Tencent adversary until he comes back in Peti Piranha form which causes Senta to sacrifice his life for Yuhu Yuzu when all the guy wanted to do was paint himself his own art, not paint himself in his own blood. But when all hope seems to be lost, Shion shimmers in out of nowhere because it's anime, why not?
0: You know what else is anime, why not? Anime tropes, like getting your backstory and then dying in the same episode. (laughs) 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 That's a major anime trope. As soon as Senta got backstory, I'm like, this motherfucker's dead. By just like
1: Tenza. By the way, he is voiced by Daiki Yamashita, who is the voice for Midoriya in My Hero. Um, so I guess he had to be a short-lived character so that he could <laughs> work on on his voice <laughs> acting for uh, Midoriya. But yeah, this was the only... I know he doesn't die in this episode, but Santa's was the only death where I kind of felt something. Um, just because like he didn't want to be in this world of the Yamada Asaimon. Um, he just... Just wanted to enjoy his hobby. Um, and I know that's why he was so fascinated by Yuzuriha. It wasn't more so like he was infatuated with her, but just fascinated by her sense of freedom. Even though I said earlier, like she just wants to watch the world burn. At least that's on her own terms.
0: I kind of like the way he died. I found it really intriguing because he gets pierced by the flower and then flowers just like bud out of his face that was mm-hmm. weird that was freaky i figured it would be like a hole in his heart and he would bleed to death or something like that but no like he's still alive he's just getting overgrown with flowers to the point where he's not going to be able to to stay alive anymore it kind of reminds me of like like a like a disease of sorts or like the last of us Oh
1: yeah the what are they called the or clickers. the called clickers yeah but I forgot the, the virus that affects them. Cordyceps.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's, it gave me the same vibes as that. I was like, ooh, that's that's freaky. That's
1: weird. One thing that I didn't realize was important in this episode is the quick scene where we see Gavimaru get a nosebleed and then he suddenly faints. Because uh, someone was talking about, I think it was Fuchi, the, the Yamada Simon for Gantetsu Sai, uh, that... There's something like he concerned that Gabimaru's emotion is going to affect his job and that's where he faints. So I don't know what the connection is here, but clearly him fainting causes him to lose his memory in the next episode.
0: Well, I think he, he got the nosebleed and faints because he used too much tau. Because mm. Sagiri also oh, okay. gets a yeah, nosebleed yeah. either this episode or one round this because she was pushing herself too hard with Tau, and Tao uses your life energy to a certain degree. So I think that's what triggered the fainting. But you're right, like, it's weird. Why would that suddenly, why would fainting cause him to lose his memory?
1: Yeah, okay, so, and I think that's the connection with Fuchi showing concern that Sagiri's, or not Sagiri, Gabimaro's emotion is going to affect his job. Once he faints and has that um episode there's no longer an emotion attached there so yeah i didn't realize this s- short scene was going to play so significantly in the final episode and in the coming season i'm sure and in the final episode for this season episode 13 dreams and reality Shion takes up jujun's pd piranha's attention while his companion yurugai assists Sagiri and yuhu yuzu with senta's mortal wounds Santa uses the last of his Hamon to instruct Shion on how to destroy the deciduous deity who leaves a flourishing field of flowers in his wake. Sagiri swears that she's going to help everyone escape this god forsaken island, but speaking of Forsaken, Gobsmaru seems to have forsaken his own memory after a fainting spell, and hollow be his name once again. In a post credit scene, A second group of Yamada Fakas are dispatched to Shinsneyland to join their embattled colleagues. Because why not send off more people to the crappiest place on earth?
0: I love the cliffhangers that this season leaves us with. Like Yuzuriha, like, sowing doubt into Sagiri's mind, saying that the immortality and Gaby Madu's wife could be a lie used to get him motivated to work for the clan. Like he's been brainwashed since he was a kid. And then you have Gaby Madu who wakes up and doesn't remember anything. That's really good. Like like mm-hmm. I said before, this show it, it kind of spoils some of the mystery pretty quickly, but it still leaves plenty to hold my interest. And I I can't wait to see where this goes next. And I hope it isn't I hope it's not short-lived in the next season. I hope they don't just info dump it away. I hope that this kind of plays out really well.
1: Right. I think it was such an interesting and unexpected twist because we've been seeing and we've been discussing this whole time about like duality, like with Gabi Maru. He knows he, he has a strength and a weakness that he must learn to fully embrace together in order for him to uh, really succeed in this mission and just to really hone his own identity. But what now he f- is in an imbalance and what is that going to mean for him going forward? Uh, that harkens back to May saying when she's talking about Tao, it's like Tao strong, weak, strong, strong. No, I think was, saying like her emphasizing that you can't just rely on strength to fully utilize your Tao. So is this going to cause him to really resort back to his alias as Gabimaru the hollow? It, it just opens up this whole can of worms that I'm looking forward to seeing like where his story goes in the next season.
0: One other thing that they haven't touched on very much, I know they they've touched a bit on um switching genders for the Ten Sen. But why did May age up so fast out of nowhere?
1: Uh,
0: I feel like that's that's not been touched on yet. Like there's something about aging on this island um, that I think is still a mystery.
1: I think it's connected to when Chobe realizes that he's gaining strength uh, because of the way that he suddenly knows Tao. I don't know if it's because he came out of that pit, but his brother Toma comments that he sees the scar growing on Chobe's neck and that Chobe's also growing in size. So I think there's a, there's a connection there with-
0: Like using power and then aging up faster? Because also yeah. like the Sen when they use all of their power and become the giant flower monsters, at least the one, the redhead one, um, they, they showed that character like super fucking old looking until that character drank- the elixir, and then Mm de-aged. So maybe using power accelerates aging. Maybe. We'll see.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you make of the post-credits scene? I feel like that was almost like like an MCU cameo where they drop that guy's name, uh, Shugen.
0: I'm going to (laughs) guess, I have no idea, but I'm going to guess that this guy is going to be a a thorn in Sagiri and Gabimaru's side. Like Maybe he's going to be the one who's very by the book and is going to go and tell Sagiri he, that she has to kill Gabimaru or something like that. That's my guess.
1: Yeah. Like there was something the way, like the way he was presented that was so ominous. Like even though he is a Yamada Asaimon, that his motives might not align with those currently on the island. But yeah, it was just funny that it was presented almost like an mcu cameo because i'm sure that was probably like an easter egg for manga readers
0: and then us anime only people are sitting here like who the fuck is this guy right.
1: <laughs> and that brings us to our final thoughts for hell's paradise or Jigokuraku. raku so how many Jigoku lean with it Jigokuraku raku with it out of 10 would you give this anime
0: i would give it a seven and a half out of 10 I've talked a little bit about how the animation gets rough at times, how the, the pacing can be a bit fast, and that there's tough info dumps to get through and try to process, but there's just enough here to keep me interested. I really like how everything is kind of revolving around lies and deceptions, and that nothing is as what it seems. I, I think there's so much potential to this story that I, I can't wait to see more, but as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, it's early days for Jigokudaku. I feel like they're trying to establish a baseline, albeit a baseline that's a little bit too heavy on the information. Um, so I think that there's going to be plenty to look forward to once we get into like the meat and potatoes of what's really going on in this island. But with that said, I hope that the info dumps do stop because I feel like that's a missed opportunity to tell the story in a really interesting way. They're opting to just tell us instead of show us. And when you're just telling me things, you lose my interest, you lose my motivation to, you know, want to root for these characters. And I also hope that we get more time now that we've kind of thinned out the cast a little bit. I'm hoping we get more time with everybody and learn more about them besides Gabimaru and Sagiri. That way, if anyone else does die down the road, I'll feel more attached to them and I'll feel more impacted by their death. But with a whole group of Asaimon on their way to the island, maybe the opposite will happen where now we have too many characters and they're just gonna kill off people once again. But either way, I'm super excited for season two. I'm glad that we've already gotten a confirmation for it and I will definitely be watching it. What about you?
1: I too would give Hell's Paradise a 7.5 out of 10. I think many social media and news outlets are claiming Hell's Paradise Chikokuraku to be the next best shonen, And while I don't necessarily agree with this sentiment at the moment, I feel like this series is on track to being a surprise hit if it continues on its current trajectory. Though it may appear homogenous at first with its check the box shown in cliches and power system the mystery of what is really going on at shinsenkyo as well as the concept of duality embedded in both the setting and in its characters is what really keeps me invested even though it takes a while for the show to get this or to get to this point and though his character design kind of comes off as plain Gabimaru I think is anything but as he becomes an intriguingly complex character full of paradoxes and trying to find his true place in this twisted world while Sagiri compliments him as an unlikely source of support in finding her own purpose as well. So all in all though I feel like this may not be Mappa's strongest outing in recent memory though I still have to give praise to the vibrancy in which they have crafted the island of Shinsenkyo and the crisp flow of action sequences, I still think there is plenty of potential with Jigokuraku where, like the concept of duality that it tackles, there may be more to it than we had originally thought.
0: And we do have that confirmation of a second season. I don't think there's any info on when it's going to be released but we already know there is more to come. So that's super exciting. We don't have to wait to know if we're going to get more of this story. I, I really can't wait. I think one of the other things I'm super interested in is the growing and developing relationship between Gabi Madu and Sagiri because they're so opposite, but they have so much in common at the same time that they, they don't even realize yet. So mm-hmm. we haven't seen them reunite after everyone's kind of in this survival mode. So I'm excited to see in the second season when Sagiri and Gabimaru do come back together, especially with him having lost his memories. And with that, thank you guys as always for tuning in. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com/strictlyseries. And tune into Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.